This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 302. And the quote of the day is from Tit Nan Han, who said, Life is available only in the present moment. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's up, everybody? Nick Ruffini here. This is session 302. Hope everybody's doing well. If you're just tuning in or you're just you're just getting hip to the podcast, thanks for being here. I do appreciate it. And all of these episodes are available on wherever you find your favorite podcast. So you can get it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, on the Cast app. I really love this app. It's called Cast, C-A-S-T-S. And I think it's like $3.99 to get it. So if you don't want to spread spend the money, I, I get it. But I just think it's a... It's a lot better of an app than uh, than using like iTunes or, or anything like that. Uh, I'm not affiliated with them. They don't advertise or anything for the podcast. I just, I recently found it. So I wanted to let you guys know. You obviously listen to podcasts, so it's a pretty cool app. So uh, if you want to check that out. Um, another thing to check out is Casio Music. So they are supporting this podcast and I suggest that you support them, but also they're doing it in a cool way. They're offering 20% off of your order over 149 bucks, and all you have to do is use the promo code POD20. And that's Casio Music, C A S C I O music.com. And they've been in business for over 70 years, guys. So they have been getting the right instrument in the hands of the musicians at the right price for over 70 years. So they're doing something right. You can check them out and save some bread. Use the promo code POD20 at Casio, C A S C I O music.com. Now, I want to get into this conversation with my friend, Paul Wertico, and I've had Paul on the podcast before, so if you want to check that out, that is episode 46, way back in June of 2014, but that's where we cover his backstory, how he got into playing, his, I, you know, a ton of stuff about him. It was a great, great conversation that we had, and this one is a little different. This is Paul talking about, he has a new book out, which is really cool. The concept behind it is really cool, so we dig into that. He also had a very life-changing event that happened in his life that he talked about. And we get deep inside the idea of improvisational music and how to really compose in the spare of the moment and and not having anything contrived. And he has he has some great advice on that, how you can practice it, all of that great stuff. And it's Paul Wertico. He always has a ton of great insights, great stories, and he's just an amazing dude. And I'm so uh, honored to call him a friend and glad to have him back here on the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into it with the one and only Paul Wertico. Paul, welcome back, buddy. How are you? Good, Nick, man. Great to be back. I was just thinking, man, it's been like, I think because we did the, we did one of, I mean, we did the interview. That was like, that was a long time ago. And then we did the the other thing. I mean, I think it's been like two years. We've been chatting in a while. Uh-huh. Right. No, I know. And well, we've been busy, right? We, we Luckily have, for us. <laughs> we have been busy. So for, for anyone listening, if you want to check out, um, there's some, I did an interview with Paul a couple of years ago that I'll put in the show notes for this as well. So if you want to check that out, we talk a lot about your background, how you got into playing, your career, blah, 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 all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a great conversation. So if anybody wants to check that out, I highly recommend uh, doing that. But we're going to talk more now about the here and now. I mean, you have a lot of uh, a lot of stuff going on, some good, some bad, some uh, some mm-hmm. things that that I think that we should we should definitely get into. Um 
So I think first and foremost, let's, let's talk about the health issue because I want to bring this up because I'm so happy to know that you're doing well. And I, after we had that, after we had a conversation, I hung up the phone and was thinking, man, I'm, I'm just really grateful. I mean, I'm, I know you are, but I'm just extremely grateful that, that all is well in, in your camp. Well, thanks. I mean, it's been an interesting summer, you know? Yeah. Um, I know we'll talk about the new book. Turn yes, the beat around. Yes, so, absolutely. so that, so that, that was happening, you know, and you know, a couple new CDs were coming out, but also, you know, I've, I'm 64 and, you know, I still feel like I'm 18 and everything's been great. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, in, in 2011, uh, you know, I just had a physical and there's a thing called PSA and it's not public service announcement. There's a thing that, you know, they test in your blood. All guys should have it at, after four, age 45. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the doctor said, oh, wow, your, your PSA is kind of high. And I was like, really? I don't even know what it is. So, you know, I guess the normal PSA is usually zero to four. And mine was like around like six and a half. So he said, man, you should go see a urologist and just, you know, make sure everything is cool with your prostate. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, because, you know, I had no family history, uh, always slept through the night. You know, the prostate exam was always fine. Still felt like I was 18 sexually. Right. So I'm like, what are you talking about? So I went to a, a urologist, you know, and he looked and he said, well, we'll just watch it. And he gave me some medicine just to make sure, you know, there wasn't an infection or anything. And everything looked okay. And then it just kind of kept on creeping up a little bit. And um, so I had like a couple biopsies with this first doctor. And they didn't find anything. And then it kept on going up. And I had an MRI. And I'm thinking, like, what is going on? Because, you know, it's expensive to do this yeah. even with health. And so everything kind of came up negative. And so they just said, well, we'll just keep on watching it. So, you know, it goes up to like 14 goes up to and then finally it got up to about 20 and I had two students one's a a surgeon and another is the head of urology in San Antonio and they said well you know you've got a good doctor but you might want to go to another doctor and get a second opinion Mm -hmm. and they both recommended this guy Edward Schaefer who is uh at Northwestern and so I went to him and by that time you know my PSA is like 25 but still no symptoms I mean like nothing everything is fine so they recommended I do another MRI, you know, and that cost, you know, even even with healthcare, it cost, I don't know, it was something like, you know, fifteen or eighteen hundred dollars out of pocket, which right. you know was ridiculous. And then they found a couple things and then so he did a biopsy and he goes, Yeah, you've got like prostate cancer. And I was like, what? And the thing is, you know, my wife was laughing because she goes, you know, Paul, you always sweat the small stuff. And then they tell you you have cancer. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, and it was like, (laughs) I didn't even feel a rush. I didn't feel anything, you know. And so they said, yeah, you know, we we, we better take care of this. So after a biopsy, you're not really allowed to have an operation for like anywhere between six and eight weeks. Mm -hmm. So, but you have to get like a bone scan because the thing is like what killed Frank Zappa, for instance, is that if it metastasizes and goes outside, it gets in your bones and it's a bad way to go. Right. You know, so I had like a bone scan, had a bunch of blood work done, just making sure, you know, and they, you know, and when they looked at the image and they did the biopsy, nothing had spread yet. Mm-hmm. So about five weeks ago, you know, I went in and it was so funny because, you know, here I am with my wife and daughter and I'm like, not even, it's like, I just went, I felt like I was just going to work. I didn't feel any, I wasn't nervous or anything. And, um, so I'm sitting there before the operation and I'm talking to this one nurse and we're just talking and I happened to give my new book to the doctor just, just, you know, cause he's a, he's a really cool, great doctor. 
And when he leaves, all of a sudden she goes, oh, wow, so you're a drummer. I said, yeah. She goes, oh, I've got like a cousin that, that's a drummer. And we start talking. And I go, oh, okay. And she just happens to mention, yeah, his name is uh, Jim Bailey. And I went, what? what? He works for Diodario? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I said, here's, here's my phone. Here's his number, you know? <laughs> so, so this is like I'm, I'm waiting to go in the operating table and we're talking, you know, and so we, we talked to, to Jim and everything. It was like hilarious. So finally, you know, I go in and, you know, I don't know what to expect, but they did it robotically, which means that, you know, in the old days when they cut you open, it was like, you know, you were kind of a mess for a long time. And the thing is with this, I mean, um, I went in and I everything seemed to be fine. And I got back to my hospital room. I stayed one night, you know, there, my family was with me and, you know, I get to the room and they say, well, hopefully, you know, take it easy tomorrow. Hopefully you get up and walk a little bit. And I said, I could walk now. And I started walking around the, the hospital and they're like, what? And I talked to a few doctors, friends of mine, they said, you sound normal. And I went home the next day and everything was normal. And it was like, it was so strange. So then the only thing is like having a catheter, which I'd never had, because the only time I'd been in the hospital is like in first grade when I had my tonsils removed, you know? So that was a little strange. So, you know, my, my daughter was giving me crap about that. You know, we were laughing, you know? Right. Um, but he gave me some pain medicine, which I didn't take. I took mm -hmm. a couple Advils for like three days, and then I didn't even take any pain medicine. And I slept through the night. And the thing is, you know, like the two things people worry about is like incontinence right. and 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 you know sexual performance but i've done kegels my entire life i probably saw playboy when i was a teenager or something you know <laughs> and just to work on your stamina you know you do these kegels and i've been doing it so everything has been fine and i have a, i have a bunch of friends you know musicians and even even professors and stuff that have had this but they didn't tell anybody it's you know they, they told their closest friends but they mm -hmm. didn't want to let anybody know because you know it's not like having a knee replacement or hernia it's it's a very private sure you know touch subject to talk about but i was like wait a second i have a new book and i wrote a book to you know help drummers have new cds you know to inspire people i've got the bully pulpit right now i'm gonna let people know about psa because you know since i'm fine i can let people know and it was so funny i, I called one of my drum companies i won't tell you which one but i was talking to an african-american gentleman there and he was in his 50s he had never heard of a PSA. Mm -hmm. And one out of seven men get this. And it's higher amongst African-Americans than even whites. And I talked to someone at my high school. They didn't know what a PSA was. And I, I went, okay, this is really interesting because uh, September happens to be Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. So all of a sudden, like Buddy Guy is the national spokesman. So I'm going to go jam with him you know, this month, I'm, uh, tomorrow I'm going on a radio show. I'm going to go jam with other people. Nice. The, the, uh, yeah. So since I'm fine, I want to spread it. That's nothing to be afraid of. But if I hadn't had that blood test, if my PSA hadn't been tested, this would have got me. Because there's a thing called a Gleason scale, which is 0 to 10. And 8, 9, and 10 is like when it spreads and you're kind of in trouble. Mine was at 7. Wow. So we were just on the verge. If I would have waited another year, who knows what would have happened with this, you know? And so... So this is just I something that you can just ask your doctor to, to screen you for, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just part of your blood work, you mm -hmm. know? And some doctors do it automatically. I, I, I didn't ask for it. I just... my This new doctor I had when I had a physical, just happened to do it. And then he told me, wow, it was high. And I, I have friends that had their prostates removed when it was like at six and seven. Right. And mine was up to 25, you know. Jeez. And yeah, but you know, someone like Frank Zappa, for instance, I, I don't know why, I don't know if he didn't want to be treated or what, you know, because the other thing is that there's different treatments. So 
I went robotically, and and the surgeon said, well, you should also talk to the radiologist, you know, because you can. You, there's an option of doing that. So I, my wife and I go, and we talk to this guy. He's 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 an in, uh, you know Indian doctor, and he's got this great long name, so everyone calls him Doctor John. So it was really funny <laughs> to talk to Doctor John. So. I'm talking to him with my wife, and he goes. He's well, like, you were at the right place at the right. Oh man, <laughs> he was. He was. I mean, these doctors. I mean, I felt like I was the only patient in, in the entire hospital the entire time. It's amazing. But so I'm talking to him, and I say, well, you know, I heard that you know radiation is is a treatment. He said, well, I wouldn't do it if I were you because he said uh, with radiation, if you have that done first, for one thing, it's like five days a week for like uh, two months for 20 minutes a day, and you have to take all kind of testosterone blockers and stuff and he said if you have radiation first if they miss something then they can't operate and they can't do any more radiation because it just melts everything down there uh. so if you have if you have it done surgically or robotic surgery then if they do miss and it comes back they can either go they can either operate again or or do radiation backup mm -hmm. so that was really interesting i mean i learned so much about this stuff i had no idea because this would have been the last thing i ever thought i would get you know, but then you think about musicians, you know, we're always sitting on amplifiers. I remember the last couple of years with Matheny, you know, I had some kind of bass thumper mm -hmm. under my drum seat, you know, it was magnet the size of yeah, this yeah. thing, you know, so you could feel your bass drum and, and the bass and everything. God knows. I mean, having that next year going ahead for uh, like who knows? You know, a couple of years, who knows? But it was so interesting because, like I said, you know, with no family history and, you know, I've even told people, I said, you know, even now I sleep through the night. They're like, wow, you sleep through the night? At your, I always have. Yeah. So there was no symptoms. So what I want to do is let all the musicians out there just, man, you know, we love to play. We love to, you know, make the world a better place. We love to do all this stuff. But just go and play. Now, the other thing that was interesting is that, you know, I hadn't touched the drums for almost a month, well, almost two months, like a month and a half. Mm -hmm. So last Friday... There was a band called Deacon Blues, which is a Steely Dan tribute band, mm -hmm. and they're you know they're, they're fantastic, and I played with them a bunch of times. But I've always played the entire night, which is like you know twenty three, twenty four songs. So when they asked me to play at City Winery on Friday, I said, "Man, I haven't touched the drums like in a month and a half. I don't know. I don't want to suck. You know, I don't mm -hmm. want to go up and, and, and <laughs> see what happens." So uh, you know, so I sat down, kind of played a little bit. Everything was fine. So when I went on stage, you know, I told the audience what had happened, and I played seven numbers, and three of them got standing ovations. And and I played, I played, I played just the way I would normally play, you know, and mm -hmm. and like all the chops came back, everything just kind of completely came back. Nice. And so that's really interesting too, because you know, I I used to practice, you know, eight to twelve hours a day, but now, you know, I mean, I've got the chops, I've got the concept, and it just felt so good to play again, and yeah. my energy level, everything was back to normal. So again, you know, something that you could fear, you know, like being sore or whatever. No, you know, that stuff happened. But what goes so, through you your know, mind when, when they tell you that you have cancer? Well, that's the thing. Nothing did. You know, it was like. Was it like a sense of numb or was it just a no, sense of like, oh, no. we'll just, well, we'll take care of this. That one. It was just the latter. It was just like, okay. Because, you know, for like since 2011, we've been watching this, but it's always come back negative. Right. And, you know, my wife's just saying you're probably an anomaly because the thing with the PSA, it's the same like with a mastectomy that sometimes they go, well, this isn't always accurate. So when my PSA was going up, there's I took a thing called a four score, which is a, kind of another blood work kind of thing where they look at other elements. But sure enough, that showed that I had a high risk. But a lot of people say, oh, the PSA, you know, I don't trust it. But in my case or, for instance, like this doctor 
Edward Schaefer, you know, he worked with Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller at 44 wow. had prostate cancer. And they both went on a bunch of television shows. Oh, at 44. And, I thought you were saying his number was at 44. No, 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 oh. no. His, at, at age 44. Okay. So they went on television just saying, man, PSA saved my life. Mm-hmm. And it would be the same thing with me. So, you know, rather than not get the test and, and just think, oh, well, you know, it's not always accurate. You're better up to find out and kind of watch it sure. because things I just heard of, a, you know, I just played a benefit for someone else on Sunday and uh, there was a bass player that, that I know that just had prostate cancer. But then they told me of another drummer here in Chicago that it just went to his bones. And so mm. now that's that's really dark when it goes there, because then what are you going to do? You know, right. So do, has this has do you think this has changed your outlook on life at all? No, no, <laughs> I, I still feel the same, you know, and it's not like I appreciate life any differently or anything. Well, I'm I think you're more, a guy, uh, I, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I, I consider you a guy who always sort of sucks every last drop out of life anyway. Like I, you always, every time we talk, I can tell that, you know, you love life. Yeah. You know? And so with this, I, you know, I, I, I like to know more about life and this was definitely something I, you know, now I know a lot more about it. But it's also, you know, a, a possibly negative thing that worked out fine for me that you can make into a positive situation, maybe save some lives out there. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, this is almost like being a musician or an artist. And rather than hide your weaknesses, when you go play, you just expose who you are. Mm-hmm. So I feel the same way with the health issue. Well, you know, why not tell the world what it is? Because, sure. I mean, something's going to get all of us anyway, you know? Oh, yeah. But, yeah. 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 So, you know. But, you know, after all these years of touring and stuff, you think, oh, a car accident or a plane crash or <laughs> Helicopter something. Helicopter something. Gonna get. Right. Yeah, something. Something crazy. But not this. But, like, we got it. So everything is fine. So crazy, huh? I got to ask about Buddy Guy. So do you – I mean, do you know Buddy? Yeah. Well, I play with Buddy sometimes. I mean, I, you okay. know, like – um, you know, I remember when we, had I was just wondering moment. if you just kind of picked up the phone and you were like, Hey, I know you had this thing. We should play together. Oh, no, I no, wasn't no, aware. No, no, no. I guess I wasn't aware that you were playing with buddy off and on. Well, no, I didn't play. I don't play with him a lot. I've done special guest artist things with him. Okay. So he's the national spokesman for this thing. I could even show you. It's like this, this pamphlet. So it's, it's put on, um, let's see, uh, I think where it is here. They're talking. Yeah. It's a blues jam on September 8th, 18th. At nine o'clock, now Buddy Guy's brother died of prostate cancer. Okay, and so there's going to be other people um, who, who's, you know, who's sons and stuff. So this is going to be a jam session mm-hmm. dedicated to you know to helping. It's uh, there's a thing called uh, PCA Blue, and so there's a girl I know who's into the blues, and uh, she was the one you know, just happened to contact me about something else, and I told her I had this, and she goes, "Oh my God, September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month," so. That's like like tomorrow I'm going on this uh, radio show and I'm going to play with these two other guys who I've never played with because they're doing a benefit this Sunday, you know. And it's just – it's and we're trying to get musicians to be able to be screened for free too. And uh-huh. even when I talked I talk to my doctor, he said, well, yeah, we can talk about that, maybe doing some Chicago musicians that, you know, can't afford to have, you know, a, you know the blood work done because right. it's really – you know, it's not like one out of a thousand men. I mean, we're talking one out of seven, and that's ridiculous. That's insane. And so it's just it's and God knows. I mean, you know, there. I just read where something today that like something like ninety three percent of water has plastic in it. You know, all those microfibers from mm-hmm. like carpet clothes. So 
you know, cell phones in your pocket. I mean, God knows what all, you know, it's a big experiment. Uh, yeah. So, and we, yeah. And we are the, uh, and we are the guinea pigs for sure. We're the guinea pigs. Absolutely. Well, I, you know? so you're saying, so over the age of 45, you say you should really get tested for, cause there's, I mean, the audience, the audience of the podcast is anywhere from, you know, younger gender, younger guys to, you know, older guys. So I think that, I think it's an, it's an important message to, Go out there and just get checked. It's just a matter of getting some blood work done. So right, and like I said, like Ben Stiller was only forty four. Right. So you know, some some men end up. I have a you know a neighbor that had it, and uh, but he had some urinary blockage or something before, mm-hmm. so he had some symptoms. You know, and some people having a large prostate when they're younger. So those are all kind of symptoms too. You know, if you have right. to get up and go to the bathroom a bunch of times at night, that could be a symptom. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all kind of symptoms. Even if you know, but but at 45, they say you definitely should start having you know having things checked. Right. Whatever you, know, you do, don't so Google it, your symptoms because by you'll think you're <laughs> you're gonna think you'll be dead by the you'll be dead by the morning. I've had malaria oh, yeah. and yellow feet. I've had everything. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, you know, some of that stuff is great to see free information, but then, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that, that, you know, that's why it's, it's important to have a good doctor. Of course. And for instance, like the doc, both doctors I had were both great, you know, but like, you know, Northwestern is a research hospital. So mm-hmm. they're on the vanguard of everything. So if you're in like North Dakota, you know, you might have a good doctor, but who knows how up to date they are on all yeah. everything too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the other thing, you know, being in LA or being in Chicago or New mm-hmm. York, there's great, there's great hospitals, you yep. know? Yep. It's, yeah. Agreed. But it makes, it, it does, you know, like it doesn't, doesn't change my opinion of life, but it's sure fun to play again, you know, after yeah. not playing a month and a half. It really made me appreciate that, you know? Yeah, of course. Well, and I, I can speak for all of us out there that we are happy to know that you are, you're healthy and you're, and you're playing and that's really good news. I'm, Thanks. I, I'm really happy to hear that. Thanks. Support for Drummer's Resource comes from my friends at Musicians Institute, and they are the official education sponsor of Drummer's Resource. And they're proud to announce they have a new innovative course on gospel drumming. And it's taught by an industry legend, Gordon Campbell, who I've actually had on the podcast. And this new course explores the history and evolution of contemporary gospel drumming. And you'll learn the essential gospel repertoire to unlock all of the secrets of this exciting style. You can learn more about this and all of the great programs at MI by going to mi.edu. For all you vintage cats out there, you can revisit the golden era of drumming with the Evans 56 Caftone. Made in New York from advanced synthetic materials and fitted with Diodario's Level 360 technology, Evans 56 Caftone delivers the warm, familiar sound you love with the quality and consistency of a modern drumhead. Learn how to get that Caftone sound by going to evansdrumheads.com. Now let's get back into it with Paul Wertigo. Let's talk about this book because you would talk to me um, before about it coming out and then uh, we sort of, we didn't talk for, for a little bit there, but so tell me about the book. I'm interested. Well, okay, you know, a couple of years ago, um, I had a friend, Michael uh, Finkelstein, who worked for Alfred, and he said, man, you should write a book, you know, and so I was thinking, like, okay, like, what kind of book do I want to write about? I mean, I could write a book about, like, my concept of music. There's a book on polyrhythms I could write. There's a bunch of different things, and then all of a sudden, you know, in my mind, I thought, wait a second, you know, there's millions of songs, there's thousands of books and everything is always with a backbeat on two and four. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what about playing 
backbeats on one and three. And even if you don't necessarily play that on all songs, obviously, it's going to make people aware just because just moving something off like by, you know, like by one beat. So then I talked to Dave Black over at Alford, you know, mm -hmm. and I was really cautious because I said, man, you know, there's no book like this. So I didn't, I'd never told anybody the name of the book or even the concept because I didn't want anybody to steal this because I thought <laughs> it was sitting so, so, no, seriously, you know, I believe you. because you could, you could tell a friend who tells a friend everything is cool, but then all of a sudden it gets down to the next person down the line. They, oh man, I'm going to write an article for Modern Drummer on this or something, you mm -hmm. know? So I ended up writing this thing. Uh, at first I did tabs because my finale wasn't working properly. And I, I wrote like thousands of tabs and then, you know, they were saying, well, we, we'd rather have finale. So then I wrote all this stuff in finale. And then when I, when I submitted the, the stuff to, to, over to Alfred, they were like, well, we like their snare drum to go you know, up instead of down. And I was like, oh, my God. So <laughs> I, I submitted all my finale things. And, and there was a guy, uh, Matt, over there that rewrote all my like, – we're talking like over a 1,000 exercises and patterns. Jeez. you know. And so that was interesting to, to proofread. He did a great job. And the idea with this book was, you know, okay, you have, you know, Sunshine of Your Love, you have like, you know, Ginger's playing, you know, things on one and three, mm -hmm. which I actually start calling front beats instead of back beats now. So I came right. up with the term front beats. You know, was it, you know, isn't there an interesting story about that, about, about how they originally, Ginger was playing that tune on two and four and then right. some, I don't know who, I just remember hearing the story and they'd say, no, yeah, I mean, try it all one and three I, and it totally made the song. Right. Okay. So even in, even in the intro of the book, I talk about that. So, you know, Ginger says like in, in you know, his book, Be Aware of Mr. Mr. Baker, that, you know, Jack Bruce brought in this tune and was kind of fast. It was like, you know, Ginger goes like dilly bop, dilly bop. Ginger says, no, slow it down and, and play it on two and four. Now, Tom Dowd, who was the engineer for Disraeli Gears, who Tom Dowd, there's a, there a great documentary called The Language of Music because Tom Dowd was like this genius engineer producer that did, you know, you know, all of Atlantic stuff, did mm -hmm. like everything, you know, for Aretha Franklin, you know, you know, to Ornette Coleman, to the Allman Brothers. And so and he, he was like, with his first recordings, well, he was like a really young guy, right? And they were like, who's the young guy behind the glass? Right, right. Yeah. Well, he was like, he actually worked on the Manhattan Project. And he was one of the guys that actually worked in, in the military wow. developing the atom bomb. I mean, this guy was like so brilliant. He was one of the first guys besides Les Paul to actually come up with eight tracks. He invented sliders on, on, on the board and everything. Jeez. So anyway, so so Tom Dowd in the documentary talks about, he said, you know, you know he's working with, with uh, you know, Cream on this Israeli Gears thing. And he said, Every, everything's going really smoothly except for this one tune, Sunshine of Your Love. And he, and he said, well, he, he brought him in. He said, man, have you guys ever seen like American Westerns? There's, you know, the, the American Indian beat that's like dun, 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 dun. And he said, once they went in and tried that, all of a sudden everything, he, he goes, everything just kind of came together and right. everyone was thrilled, you know? So there's two different stories on this. So, you know, the, the front beat thing, there's not that many examples. I, I talk about dazed and confused, mm -hmm. you know? which is 12 eight, you know, Led Zeppelin, yeah, the second course. chorus. If you listen, he's playing on one and three. I don't know if you ever noticed that. I didn't. Uh, most people don't. So listen to it. So after, after they come in that first chorus with the drums, he's playing on one and three. And, and I referenced also the band if, which was this great jazz rock band with the drummer, Dennis Elliott, who went on later to play with foreigner. And there's a tune called forgotten roads. And he plays on one and three on some of it. And there's a really amazing YouTube video so if you look under if forgotten roads 
from 1970, there's this German, I think, beat club version of them playing it live. And he's like playing on one and three behind the guitar solo. It's incredible. What but year? then there's other, 1970. 70. Okay. So then I'm there's a couple other, exa- couple other examples, um, li- you know, Derek and the Dominoes with Jim Gordon on drums. Mm-hmm. So the album Layla and Other Love Songs, Bell Bottom Blues. Jim plays on one and three yeah, for yeah. parts of that. And then on Chicago 7, Danny Serafin on w- Woman Don't, Don't Want to Love Me, he does the same thing. He's playing on one and three. So besides those and some reggae things and like some Tony Allen Afro beats and stuff, there's not a lot of that. But what's interesting is that when you do, because the book goes from the simplest million dollar beat quarter notes to like four way coordination that's almost impossible, you know, mm-hmm. like with endurance and stuff. So it really runs the gamut. And the reason I wrote it is not only to replace backbeats, even though I hope sometimes now you can take a tune and, and reverse it, mm-hmm. but also with my students now, like when I have them work on it and then I say, okay, let's just play backbeats now, their one and three gets really fat and wide. And mm. it's like all of a sudden they're feeling that one and three. Cause, you know, a lot of times drummers, they're worried about the backbeat, you know, and the, and the one without, without the two and four, there's no one and three and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this makes you think completely differently. And even with fills, you come out and all of a sudden, if you have to hit a, a crash with your snare drum on the one, that's going to make it a lot different than hitting with your bass drum. So you, know, you, you can work on over the bar line things. You can work on linear things. You can use this book to sight read because there's so many patterns with accents and, and different, just different broken up rhythms. There's so many ways to use this book. So, you know, finally, when, when you know, I had sent the final drafts to Alfred, to Dave Black, um, he, he asked me, what about the cover? And I said, well, let's have like a reverse image. And so I, I suggested that. And whoever did the graphic design, this cover is killing. It's brilliant. I'm looking the guy, at it right now. Yeah, you know, okay, you got it. Good. You know how the, the snare drum and then the bass drum, how it's half and half. And if you yeah. look at that first beat, that's Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin. Backwards, it's So you start taking, you know, beats and you just kind of like start them in like one beat off and all of a sudden to me it, it's it gives it more urgency to have it on the one and three mm-hmm. and you know in the intro i talk about you know some of the theory behind western music that you know your strong beats are one and three and your weak beats are two and four in western classical music you know right. there's a reason for that but like you know with a- uh, african music and you know african-american music the two and four got to be prominent mm-hmm. you know because with syncopation you accent some of the weaker beats but to me, you know, you could use this book and play play it down in so many ways, but it's also going to help you just in your normal playing. And that's why I wrote it. So let me ask you this. With these exercises, are you – so you're it's it's teaching people how to use one and three as – we'll call it a quote-unquote backbeat or as, as the uh, – Front beat. As, well, or as the front, the front beat. beat. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, but, but I guess you could also use any of these and flip them and hear them as two and four too, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, you you could do that if you wanted to do it. The only thing with this is that, you know, just playing one and three, that's part of it. But then I've got all these other snare drum exercises where you have accents on one and three, but then, you know, you have different 16th notes and eighth notes, which can be ghosted and stuff mm-hmm. too. So, you know, you can take anything and move it around really. Right. But right. the whole idea is like, like, you know, like I said, you didn't, you didn't realize, and most of the people I've talked to didn't realize that dazed and confused he's playing on the one and three on that second chorus yeah because it's so subtle 
but it, it, it again makes you aware, just like with the prostate cancer thing. You want to make people aware of things that they maybe aren't aware of, yeah. you know? And since it's the only book of its kind, no one's ever wrote a book like this. I actually dedicated it to my high school band director because even though he wasn't, he was a trumpet player, when I was in high school, this guy let me do anything I wanted. I mean, he would let me improvise on symphonies and say, yeah, I like what you're doing more. So he always encouraged my wildest fantasies and everything to play. And so I, I probably I probably would, would have been a chemist if I wouldn't have had him because he really <laughs> literally... Let me, and plus he would bring, like, he would bring our students to see these bands. So literally, you know, we'd go and, you know, we'd sit and there's Duke Ellington's band and Count Basie's band, Buddy Rich's band and, and Woody Herman's band. And then on the break, they would sit with us. So here I'm like a 16 year old kid singing next to Duke Ellington, talking to him, you know? That's so nuts. that's the kind of band director. And, and he wasn't even like a jazz guy. And when I told him, I dedicated the book to him. He goes, oh, you gave me way too much credit, but no. You know, he's the kind of band director that, you know, to me, I hopefully I'm a teacher like that too, coming from him, that you want to expose people to expanding their creativity, mm -hmm. not to locking in stuff and going, this is the right way, you know, not the whiplash kind of way. <laughs> you know, you want to do this, you want to do this to let people become themselves because all of us, we all are completely individual, you know, and some people are going to be able to see something that no one else sees. And even with this book, I thought either people can think I'm crazy or a genius. I mean, yeah, kind of kiddingly, but yeah, you know, you do something like, why would anybody do that? But now I've had people go, well, I can't believe no one else has ever done that before. Yeah. You know, well, it's been sitting waiting to, to be written. I think that everything that we learn as drum, I mean, by and large, I don't want to, I don't want to completely generalize, but I think that a lot of, you know, everything that we learn is downbeat two and four focused and everything is heavy on that. All of your fills, everything is like, you know, everything starts and ends on the downbeat. Everything. It's just like, you know, doom, doom, got to do, got to do, like everything is just, it's all it now when having this conversation makes me think of that like everything is so downbeat heavy all the time this even even if players never play one of these you know these quote unquote beats or exercises or something in a yeah. tune it has them at least understanding just having a better understanding of okay there's there's also the upbeats let, let's pay right. attention to the upbeats. Like you said, you can't have the downbeat without the upbeat. Right. And I'm also thinking that, you know, not for drummers, but, you know, what happens if, if we reverse songs? So, like, when I played at City Winery, um, you know, we did two Matheny tunes, too. So we did Last Train Home, and we did This Is Not America, you know, mm -hmm. by David Bowie that I'm on. And so... I told them, okay, I'm going to start playing some front beats at the end of This Is Not America, you know? And so we didn't rehearse. I don't know how you call them front beats. And, That's cool. <laughs> yeah, front beats. Well, because, you know, just think of a band band leader going, okay, on this time I want front beats, meaning that, okay, the drummer is going to know, okay, I'm going to play on, yeah. the, on the one and three. And so when I turned it around, man, the way they looked, they started like smiling, this big smile on their face because it felt so different than playing the, the, the backbeat, which is totally normal, you know? Mm -hmm. it's I, I never... I don't know. I never really thought, I mean, obviously I've thought about like upbeats and downbeats and things like that, but not, not going down that road and really exploring what can be done with them, you know? Cause like I said, mm -hmm. everything is so, to me, everything's so, so downbeat heavy, so downbeat focused and everything, you know, it's just an interest. It's a, I think it's an interesting concept. Yeah. And I mean, hopefully people will buy the book I mean, it's only 20 bucks for one thing. Right. So that was, that was the other thing is that, you know, we, we try to keep it, not too long, not too, you know, like where you just, you know, every, every possible exercise variation. I mean, we, I, there's a lot of variations, but you don't, you know, part of it, 
is is to have whoever's working out of the book be creative and come up with their own variations too. Mm-hmm. But like I said, there's over well over a thousand rhythms and exercises in this thing, you know. That's enough. And so you know, we'll see what happens. I some a lot of times I get books and people send me books or whatever, and to me there's just there's too much information in there, and mm-hmm. I start to work through, and then I say, okay, I just can't. I'm not. I'm never going to make it through this book. Um, but I love the fact that you you have just examples and different things that you can you can play. It's not like another lesson and then another lesson. It's not lesson 953, and you're like, oh my right. god, I don't remember what I did, you know, on lesson 952. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, and so you know, we'll see. I mean, it just came out uh, in like July 7th or something. So it seems like it's doing well. Someone told me that they went on Amazon and they were out of it a week or two ago and they were ordering more. So hopefully that's true, you know. Awesome. And I didn't write it to I didn't write to make money. Right. I mean, basically I just wrote it cuz it's like when you do a, you know, CD, it's like, you know, you're coming up with some kind of visualization of you as an artist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm already writing another book on polyrhythms, so you know, that's like a, I got a really weird concept on that too, but you know, that's going to be interesting. Does and that one really have to hard. stay under wraps too? That one's kind of had to stand to wraps too, for right. sure, you know. <laughs> but but it's really it's really hard to write, you know, because finale does. It's like the stuff I come up with. These programs can't write, you know. Mm-hmm. They can't they can't do all the all the numbers and stuff. Right. It's so funny. But this, this one will be really interesting, you know. Awesome. But I'm going to take time, yeah. And then you know, new CDs. I mean, the, this band Word of Cocaine and Gray. Uh, we just came out with our sixth CD. Uh, it's mm-hmm. called After Live. I came up with that because it was a live show, but we m- did things after the fact. But that's like a band that's 100% improvised. We never talk about anything. And so it's so interesting at this age. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Like 100% Not, improvised? T- totally, everything. So we go out really? in front of a live audience and just play. And we have no outline of anything. And, and, and like, that's what the records come out to be, but they sound like compositions because, you know, the three of us, you know, we're listening, we, we are making up structure and stuff as we go along and it's, it's, it's a trip. So how does it, how does it start? Like you guys, you guys walk on stage and what, and what happens? Some of one, somebody starts or we just (laughs) start together, whatever, you know? I mean, uh, did I send you, you know... Uh, oh, I I've listened I to you- it. I just didn't realize yeah. that it was completely... Un- uh, that it was completely improvised. 100%. 100%. Well, when you were 100%. like, oh, it's improvised music, I said, oh, okay, well, oh, that makes sense. Like, you know, I play inter- improvised music. I didn't realize that it's 100% improvised and you guys have no idea what you're getting ready to do right. before you walk exactly. on stage. Is that, in- is that intimidating or freeing? It's freeing. I mean, I've been doing that. You know, I had the band Spontaneous Composition earwax control i've done a lot of music that's been 100 percent improvised right but this particular i mean you know this is our sixth cd we've got a couple of dvds out now and just the chemistry i mean sometimes you know i'm listening to these tracks as we're mixing them so you know here i am in the ho- you know the hospital bring you know get, go to the operation and i'm working with dave we're mixing and mastering this thing right and you know, all of a sudden, like tempo changes, they sound like we're reading charts and we're not, and we're not even looking at each other. It's not even cued. It's just so bizarre. Just so to me, that's, that's the kind of music I really want to play. I really want to see what I have in me, you know, that's completely different. And then at the same time, like there was this new, there was this band SBB, this Polish rock band I played with that, that was like, you know, they're in the Polish rock and roll hall of fame and stuff. And I played with them for seven years, and there's this new thing that just came out. For, it was a live show with a different guitar player from 2002, 
And all of a sudden, the, the club calls me. They did a limited edition four LP two gold CD discs, and I'm listening to that. And I'm going, oh my god, you know, you know, because it sounds like Hendrix's band or something. Right. Yeah, and we had never rehearsed with that band either, but we were playing tunes. I mean, you know, because you know, it was a rock band, so there was, you know, there's a singer and stuff, even though it's a trio. So, you know, all these different types of music, you kind of look at your life and go, "Wow, this is it's this is a documentation of what you've been doing and all these different parts of you." You know, the jazz, you, the rock, you. In fact, I don't even want to be called a jazz drummer. I'd rather be called an improvising musician right. because I improvise no matter what I'm playing. It can be, you know. I'm on blues records. I'm on, you know, all kind of records. Mm -hmm. So you're making it up on the spot, but a hundred percent improvisation is really the most fun because then, you know, you're with a blank slate, you have to create something. And if you don't create anything, you know, if you're not listening or whatever, it's, it's a disaster, which luckily we haven't hit the disaster yet. You well, know? This, well, there's a couple questions that I would have, but the first one would be when you walk into this, like when you guys go in to record a record, yeah, you just go into the studio, just turn the mics on and say, okay, let's go. Let's figure well, it out. A lot of the stuff, a lot of stuff's been live. Most of the stuff's been live, but like the record, the fifth record's called Shortcuts, 40 Improvisations. So I came up with the idea. I, I do all the titles and everything for the record. I do all the sequencing. And I said, let's just do a bunch of, you know, like 30 second, you know, maybe a minute up to a minute improvisation. And I had a stopwatch with me. So we would just, I'd say, okay. And we would play and then stop. And so there's 40 improvisations on this CD. And then the title, so I came up, you know, we did 40 improvisations. I came up with the titles with Dave and the titles tell the story as you go down in fact, the new CD, he actually reads the titles as one of the one of the songs, which is kind of wild. And then sequencing was really hard. So how do you sequence 40 different compositions to, to make it move forward? Yeah. But it came out great, you know. And this this we won awards. We went we, the first time we played live um, it was improv obviously improvised, and we won uh, Independent Music Award for Best Live Performance. And then Realization, which was our fourth, we won. We were nominated for Best Live Performance and, and Best Long Form Video. Because David Kane, besides playing sax and keyboards, he's also a filmmaker. So we do all these films, too. You know, it's cartoons. So awesome. And, you know, it's so, you know, so at this age, I feel like I'm having more fun than ever now. That's you know, good. That's it's, good. Really, it's really a blast. So what, what about the... What makes the improvisation good? And this is totally a subjective question, but for me, I I love improvised music. So I love organ music. I love jazz. I love all that. But what I don't like is the sort of like noodling, like jam band, not going anywhere. And I like I went to I've gone to a hundred fish shows. I love fish, right? So, but like, there's other bands that are that that they go on stage and they're like, oh, we're just gonna jam, and they just yeah. noodle around for 20 minutes. And to me, it's sort of like it's sort of ear numbing and is not interesting at all. Well, well, I think you know all three of us, you know, are composers for one mm -hmm. thing. So we're spontaneously composing. Right. Like for instance, you know, I, I, I'm an associate professor, tenured associate professor of jazz at Roosevelt University. So, you know, like when I'm playing, you know, I'm always, and, and when I'm teaching, I'm always telling kids that, you know, the drum part you come up with, you should be able to listen to it and always know where you are in the song without any of the other instruments. Mm -hmm. So you're a composer. And then uh, Larry Gray, who is an associate professor of jazz at uh, University of Illinois, you know, he's a virtuoso bassist, cellist, guitar player, P 
cannist flautist. I mean, he's just like one of those guys. And like David Kane is also has also studied composition. So when we're composing, we aren't just noodling. It's you know because I you know I, there's that record um, sign of four with uh, Derek Bailey and and um, Pat Metheny and Greg Bendian. And some of that just went on forever because like Derek Bailey was famous for being an improviser, but like his stuff didn't develop, you know, mm -hmm. it was almost like it just kind of happened and then it was gone. And it's kind of like go-go music after a while. It's, like, kinda, it's like sometimes yeah. go-go music, just like it's 15 minutes of the same thing. And that's great. I mean, that's, and he was brilliant at it. He would never repeat any ideas. I mean, he could just take, you know, a hollow bar to guitar with a, you know, twin reverb, no effects and come up with like the most ridiculous stuff for like two hours. Right. But for us, you know, I really like when, when you can listen back and, and you just, it just sounds like almost like a composition mm -hmm. because it is spontaneous composition. It's not just noise or it's just not, you know, it's not just the sound of birds. I mean, birds ha have elements of composition too, I guess, if you really listen to them. But, you know, if you listen to just traffic, there's things that happen and, and there's form and everything. But music sometimes, I mean, especially if you're playing atonally or arrhythmically or whatever, it's it's good to have marking points that that finish what you just did and it's a new start to something else mm -hmm. you know and the other thing is is to not go on for 20 minutes all the time sometimes we might but you know go on for 30 seconds i mean yeah. think about try, trying to play 30 seconds and have a beginning a middle and an end on a 30 second composition and do that over and over again so like shortcuts does that every tune is this little thing i mean we'd probably be really good at the film scoring for one thing i mean yeah. that would be really you know it's, it's almost like that kind of mentality in a way but the idea is is to tell a story when you play and so you can either tell a story in a sentence or you could tell a story in a paragraph or tell a story in a whole novel i mean mm -hmm. it just depends but if someone reads a sentence or reads a paragraph or reads a book and at the end they go I have no idea what I just read. This was just, you know, senseless. Then what, you know, to me, that's not really what I want to do, at least personally. I want to have something that actually takes the listener and takes them from point A to point B to point C, wherever you go and drops them off. And went, wow, that was an interesting journey. Not just something that just kind of happened and like, wow, that I wish I could have that 20 minutes of my life back kind right. of mentality, you know? Probably a tough question to answer and definitely a loaded question, but how do you how do you do that? How do you tell a story behind the kit? I think it's such an intangible and it's such a, you know, it's one thing to say, how do you play the groove from this tune? And you can just hand somebody a sheet of music, but getting to that, that sort of that, I don't even know how to describe it, that, that space where you're telling a story and you're, you're actually saying something behind the kit. What ways do you think others can, can get there? Well, that's a great question. And it depends on the style of music. So, you know, I always tell all my, all my students to learn the lyrics. If you're playing like jazz or rock, learn the lyrics because you want to learn what the song's about, mm -hmm. you know. So then, like, so if you're just playing a groove, maybe you're just playing just the groove for a long time, which builds up tension because, you know, a repetitive thing, the longer it goes without a fill, for instance, it's almost people want it, they want to release. Mm -hmm. So then it's just releasing at the right time in the right way with the right feel, you know? So, so if you're playing something like that, you might not be playing a lot and you're, you're, you're basically functioning as the beat, 
but you're still composing, you know, and, and you, you know what's going on around you. You know the lyrics. You, you, you can, you're listening to the guitar player and the bass player, whoever's playing. So your part matters. Then, like with jazz, for instance, I mean, then you have chord changes or you have, you know, more complex forms. That's when, you know, you're copying. And a copying means a company, it means compliment. Mm-hmm. So there, you're actually listening and you're putting commas and periods and exclamation marks and question marks to the people you're playing with. And then you're also, you know, we're also the conductor of the band. So not only are we conducting the tempo, but, you know, we're, we're marking the dynamics, you know, we're, we're, we're marking tension and release, um, question and answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, le- le- even with my book, I, I kind of say in the book, the, the, the one to the two, the three to the four, that's like a question and answer w- with the, with the front beats. It's almost like jeopardy where you have the answer first and then you have to ask the question. <laughs> so it's like looking at it like that. So, you know, to me, you know, if, if, if you think logically, that's one thing, but if you think that what you're playing has a purpose other than just existing then you are you you might put like little you know crescendos or diminuendos in there you might put a break at the right time you know you might play a game because you know sometimes you want to play something funny i mean you know if you're playing like all this crazy polyrhythmic stuff and then you end it with bop bop all of a sudden that's corny as hell but everyone knows but you know shaving a haircut two bits that goes back to the beginning of jazz and vaudeville if you put that in like people somehow like wow that was interesting why did he put that in there you know because you want the audience to feel something you want them to experience something so you want to make them laugh you want to you know sometimes have them you know be anxious you know you're basically playing games with the emotion of the audience right so as a drummer you're doing that with the audience you're doing it with the musicians and you're doing it with the composition is that hopefully that answers that partly that the question. Com- completely does how how would you suggest people practice that or is it just a matter of doing it live and experimenting and and you know working on it because well, you can't sit in a practice yeah. room by yourself and sort of i mean you i guess you could play question and answer and things like that by yourself but you can't feed off a bass player you can't you know but you could feed off yourself mm-hmm. you know you really can i mean there's a thing on on youtube i did a clinic in uh Argent- argentina like a, a year or two ago and i was talking i was just demonstrating like the different things that you can do and i said like even if you're playing by yourself it's the most fun one of the most fun you can do things by yourself you know i yeah. kind of said that way and so w- when you're playing rather just you know if you're working on your time you're working on a beats or you're working on coordination or whatever you still want to play music all the time you know mm-hmm. you want to be thinking compositionally so even if you don't play guitar or bass or whatever you still have to think like a guitar or bass player you still have to think that there's actually a song there you know and some of this stuff is really hard i mean if you play a modal tune for instance like if you play so what which is basically the same as impressions Mm -hmm. you know you have an a a b a and it's funny sometimes students will forget oh is this the third a or is this the first day i'm in you know (laughs) but if you think compositionally and you think about things ramping up to the bridge, and then all of a sudden they kind of ramp down again to the next chorus. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you're not going to get lost because you're making sense out of the way you're approaching what you're playing. Sure. But if you just think A A B A, it's really easy to go. Oh my God, I forgot what A I'm on here. You mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. that's that's when things do become disastrous. All of a sudden, some you know somebody goes to the bridge and someone doesn't. That's when you're in trouble. You know. Right. So right. I think really when you practice, you really have to think as a composer. And it, then it just becomes kind of becomes habitual, you know, it mm-hmm. becomes habit. After. Sure. 
No, that makes sense. It's a tough it's a tough place to to get to. I've definitely strived to do that all the time. Uh but it's just, you know, it's it's difficult. It's it requires focus and it requires work and and listening and paying attention, not just sitting down and, you know, just, you know, grinding out beats or whatever, you know. Right. Right. But that's the thing too, you know, I mean, like I love the metronome. I do so many records with metronomes, but I'm playing totally free over it, but still never get off with it. But a metronome is one thing, but, you know, play with tunes. I mean, if you're going to work on your rudiments, you know, put on like a great, like, you know, put up a, a Beyonce track or put on like a Al Green track or something and play rudiments inside the music. Like you're like a percussionist. All of a sudden you're going to become more aware of like two beats or two bars, four bars, eight bars. You're going to become aware of form. Mm -hmm. So you start training yourself to be able to feel lengths of time, you know, longer and shorter. And, and plus, then you're actually playing beats with music. So you pretend, even if you're just playing on a snare drum and work on paradiddles, you know, you, you lock it in with the bass player and the guitar player. And all of a sudden, you know, you visualize that you're a percussionist playing like, you know, whatever, you know, a break drum or something. Mm -hmm. And then you become, it's music. It's not just drums. I mean, you know, because yeah. I love the drums and drums, you make a lot of music on the drums. But at the same time, if you're not aware of, of musical forms, if you're not aware of, of the other parts that people are playing and the lyrics, then you're, you are just kind of sitting there being a timekeeper. Sure. And you, you want to be more, you, know, you want to be a timekeeper and a composer at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Paul, you never, you never let me down with the, the knowledge that you have and just the, the concepts. I love it. Um, for, for people listening, I've, I want you to check out Turn the Beat Around. It's his new book. Also, if you go to drummersresource.com forward slash around, A-R-O-U-N-D, sign up for the giveaway. I'm going to get one of these books and I'm going to send it to uh, a lucky winner. Also, uh, just go to Paul's website. It's just paulwertico.com, right? Right, right. Go to paulwertico.com. All the information is on there with the records, with the with the book, all of that stuff. Also, get your PSA checked. Uh, it's Prostate Cancer Awareness Month here in September. And Paul, again, man, I am I'm beyond uh, thrilled to know that that you are on the mend. Everything is everything is well with you. And although it was a it was a scary situation and not the best situation like you said you can take it and, and turn it into a positive which i think is a, a great thing and now let's get some other people to uh you know to get their psa checked and and to make sure that they're taking care of themselves nick you're the greatest man thanks that was it's great to talk to you great questions it's but also thank you for you. spreading that too yeah man of course yeah, man. of course and you know like i say this all the time but you are welcome anytime man my brother <laughs> Good deal. Okay. Paul, the best. Thanks so much again. Thank you again. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Okay. Ciao. All right. Ciao. So there you have it, my friends, the one and only Paul, where to go. And again, what he was saying, if you are of the eight, if you're 45 or older, just go get your PSA test done. It's very simple. It's just some blood work and it could save your life. So a really important message from Paul there. Also, if you want to get the notes, get links to his new book, which I recommend that you check out, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash session 302. And I'll also throw up a link on there if you want to register or sign up to try to win one of Paul's books for free. So you can check that out again, drummersresource.com forward slash session 302. And one last ask, if you haven't already, please leave a rating for a re or a review for the podcast, Can't Talk. 
uh, head over to iTunes. You can leave it. it. It takes a minute and a half. I will love you for it. And I'll love you either way. But if you do leave a rating or a review, that is so much more awesome. All right. Until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Peace.